So I'm going to talk about my own opinion on like protein powders. And Uh-oh. my my opinion comes from my experiences and my experiences with patients. So Watch out, Grady's hot take coming in fast. <laughs> going out on a limb here. following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up everyone and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. What is up, everyone, and welcome back to the Diabetes Podcast. All you Diabetes out there and friends and family and and new new listeners welcome to this episode of the diabetes podcast good to have you guys here so today uh, dr gray and i are going to be talking about protein and how it affects your blood sugar a little bit but before we get into that um you know i think a segment grady that you and i haven't done in a minute as the kids say a minute um <laughs> is you know how we have recently felt free from our diabetes Ah, yes. So I think that's always important to to discuss. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, um, I recently just started intermittent fasting again. Um, it's been a, been a minute since I've um, done some intermittent fasting. And um, intermittent fasting always helps me out a ton in many different ways. Um, and blood sugar is definitely one of those ways. And... Um, it's been, I think this is, this will be the fourth day and, you know, within like one or two days, I already started seeing changes in my blood sugar, my insulin sensitivity, and, um, everything becomes a little bit easier to control because things stay much more steady. My digestion works a lot better so I can anticipate, you know, um, what I need to take my insulin, how I need to take my insulin because, um, it's becomes a little less unpredictable. And so, yeah, it's makes things a lot easier. And so therefore I don't have to worry near as much about my diabetes. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That ease I think is really important. So what kind of intermittent fasting do you do in terms of your ratios or anything like that? Yeah. So I guess, I guess most people would classify it as time restricted eating and not so much intermittent fasting. Um, and so I do the 16, eight method. So I fast for 16 hours and eat my eating windows eight hours. And so I, and I always try and time it. So that way I eat right when I wake up. And so that usually will be, um, you know, lately it's been around seven, uh, seven or eight. So I'll stop eating usually around between like one to 3 PM and, Mm. Um, so that's usually my eating window. The reason for that is because it just 
is more in line with your cortisol rhythm and therefore your circadian rhythm. Um, because when you um, fast through the night, your cortisol is highest in the morning because your blood sugar is starting to drop and your body's trying to wake you up so that way you can go and kill something and eat it. And so if oh, you- wow, that's aggressive. Yes. <laughs> and so if you wait longer than that, um, it can affect that cortisol rhythm and throw it out of balance. So that's why I, I like to do it. So that way I eat when I wake up and so I can set that cortisol rhythm on a good note. Do you find that pretty easy to work with in terms of your schedule and seeing patients and just like normal life planning of, you know, eat in the morning and stop eating around like one, two, like, is mm -hmm. that pretty conducive? It actually works pretty well because my lunchtime is from like one to two thirty. So I, my first patient back from lunch is usually at two thirty, And so, like I said, I usually stop eating anywhere from one to three. So that's right in that window there. Um, so it works out pretty well. Um, the only problem that you can run into is people want to go out to dinner with you or something like that. Um, I don't really <laughs> eat out much anyway, so I don't have a problem with that. And I don't have a problem sitting with people while they eat, even though they feel awkward about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't bother me at all, but some people have, have trouble with that. Sure. You know, uh, I do some, I do intermittent fasting as well. And I've recently modified it because, you know, I used to do eat right away in the morning and then stop eating. Uh, I never, very rarely have I stuck to 16 hours. I found that really hard for myself, but you know, maybe like anywhere from 13, 14 was, was normal. But so I would maybe stop eating around 4.30 or five. But uh, I actually had to shift my intermittent fasting schedule recently to uh, not eat in the morning and wait until like around 10 or 11 to break my fast, uh, which was an interesting transition when all I knew was like eat right away and then stop. Yeah. Um, and it totally makes sense that it follows your circadian rhythm, you know, eat right away and, you know, kind of like break your fast. Like, you know, you've been, that's literally what breakfast means, break yeah. fast. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, at, at least right now with my current schedule, uh, you know, I was waking up early and just, I don't know, with my clarity and, and trying to be effective at night. Um, I kind of feel like I need more fuel later in the day for me mm -hmm. personally. Um, so I've kind of adapted it to change where I break my fast around maybe 10 or 11 compared to breaking it super early and ending it super early. But I'm glad that you feel it gives you some freedom that you've been doing these past couple of days. It's awesome. Yeah. What about you? What's made you feel free from diabetes? So without getting into another whole story about me exercising and, <laughs> and my, my <laughs> pump going haywire, uh, but to make a long story short, this past weekend, um, I'm training for a marathon, the Milwaukee Marathon, and this past weekend, on Friday evening, my pump started to go a little bit nuts, and I was getting some alerts that said, um, you know, insulin flow blocked for no apparent reason. I really didn't know why this was going on. And throughout the whole night, I tried to change my sight once and um, I fell asleep and continued to not uh, get insulin from me, and, you know, throughout the night. And it was so essentially in terms of my circadian rhythm and like if I was using monitors to track my sleep, I'm sure I got very little like restful sleep that night. Mm, yeah. Right. So I was just dead, dead tired. And finally, my blood sugar was coming back down. Um, I think I changed my sight again, maybe around like four or five, six a.m., something like that. And 
when I woke up around eight, my blood sugar was starting to come down, but I was supposed to run 13.5 miles in the morning. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen right away. Yeah. <laughs> when you're coming down, my blood sugar got up to like 460 or something like that again. And, you know, when you're coming down pretty aggressively from that number, like it's mm-hmm. going to like, you gotta be, you gotta keep an eye on it. You can't go too low and then overcorrect and, you know, you kind of need to let it chill. Mm-hmm. And running can easily make it kind of go a little haywire, especially since it'll dip low, go high, you know, go yeah, high. Especially again. when you're going on a long run like that. Yeah. Which I haven't even, you know, I don't think we've taken the time to, from, to talk about how running and blood sugar is affected. Cause I've definitely learned some things about, at least for me personally. And from what I understand about biochemistry and why blood sugar acts the way it does when you run at certain time intervals, but um, it can definitely, when you run that long, be a little tricky, but anyways, so how I felt free was, despite this really upsetting night sleep and changing my plans throughout the day of studying or, you know, just when I was going to do what I ended up saying, rolling with it, you know, I was just was present in the moment. I said, this is just my situation. And, you know, I'm going to try to do the best I can and use my time and not pout about it and not, you know, I'm just going to do it. So um, I was able to, after like four hours of being awake, four and a half hours being awake, my blood sugar was finally steady part of part of the trip I ended up having like hot dogs <laughs> in the morning <laughs> um, because it hot dogs being so processed has some yeah gross gross glucose in it but some protein as well and we're talking about protein <laughs> in a second but I knew both those things were important to stabilize my sugar <laughs> anyways so how I felt free was um, I kind of rolled with the punches and then on my run it was one of my best runs I've had in a long time and it felt so freeing and it was a beautiful day um, outside next to the lake and the sun was, sun was out, sky was out, you know, it was blue compared to the normal gray that and snowy that's been around here recently. And um, I was just like perfect temperature and I actually shaved around 20, 30 seconds off my PR for that kind of distance, wow. um, which I was super happy about. Yeah, that's And awesome. so on top of like, Thank you. And so even on top of just like feeling good on the run, like I did the best I've ever done on a run like this, despite having such a crazy morning and night with my blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And it really, you know, just continued to solidify my brain. Like you, I don't have to be defined and be chained down by this condition, you know, and I can live free. And so I did feel free, especially while running, you know, like there's definitely that runner's high that was going on. I was like, man, this yeah. is Right. So that's, that's how I felt free recently of my, of my day of diabetes was kind of overcoming that and just enjoying that moment. Awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did bring up, I did bring up hot dogs <laughs> <laughs> and we are talking about protein today. <laughs> yep. Um, so even that hot dogs more or less are a mystery meat. <laughs> Dr. Gray, I know you've looked into some different kinds of meats and some pro different kinds of protein. Um, and how they can affect blood sugar. Um, so why, why don't you share a little bit about what you know about different types of protein and different types of meats? Yeah, so um, when we think about protein, we obviously think about animal meats. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you have your red meat, your white meats, your fish. Um, that's what we typically think about. And so it's very interesting that, I think we've talked about this before, that we 
don't get educated on this when we're in the hospital that, you know, how protein and meats can affect your blood sugar because it can be very confusing um, when you aren't taught that. Like, why, are, why is my blood sugar doing this? And, you know, this is one of that pieces of the puzzle that will help kind of help you understand um, what's going on there. So um, we've talked about a little bit before how um, the glycemic index and how that has to do with the spike in your blood sugar um, when you're eating carbohydrates and how certain things, whether that's fiber or proteins and fats can affect that glycemic index. And with proteins, generally, they're going to help um, dampen that uh, glycemic index, so that spike in glucose after a meal. And um, so with meats, you have both proteins and fats in them. And so you're getting that combo in there. Um, now, different proteins, different protein sources, so red meat and white meat, so chicken, um, are going to do different things with your blood sugar because they have different fat content. They have different protein content. Um, and so it just kind of reiterates the, the point that we like to bring up in every podcast, which is you have to get data on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking from experience, from my own experience, white meat, so like chicken, turkey, things like that, will oftentimes not affect my blood sugar near as much as some of the red meats like beef or pork. Mm. Um, and even within that, even if within that, those classifications of red meat and white meat, um, like beef, for example, um, there's, a, there's almost like a threshold for me where I will start to notice uh, more changes. So um, like with beef, if I... For example, if I were to only have beef in a meal and, you know, no vegetables, nothing else, only beef, I can usually handle about like a half pound of ground beef without Mm -hmm. too much change in my blood sugar. I'll still have to take a little bit of insulin for it. Um, And Garrett will talk about why that is here in a little bit. But Mm -hmm. um, when I get in above that, so like, you know, I have these packages that come in full pound packages of of Mm -hmm. ground beef so if i have the full pound of ground beef it will really start to affect my blood sugar so i know that i have to you know restrict my beef intake to a half a pound at a time um in order to keep it easier for me to maintain my blood sugar Mm -hmm. but i also know that if i'm super hungry or, you know, I just want to splurge a little bit and I want to have that, you know, whole pound of beef <laughs> and I, I have, I have my parameters that I need to do as far as bolusing and things like that. Mm. And so, that's, yeah. I was just going to say, I think that's so funny that, I mean, I, I, I do it too, but the fact that a splurge <laughs> is a pound of beef, yeah, like a, a normal person doesn't splurge by eating a pound of beef. Yeah. Let alone, like most people can't eat a pound period, but yeah, that kind of meat. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of, uh, I just think that that was just kind of funny. So it's interesting though, that instead of you try to on a day to day basis, you go for a limit on quant quality quantity of beef and mm-hmm. protein compared to eating what you feel like you want to eat for whatever situation. And then, 
bolusing for it mm-hmm. on a normal day-to-day basis. Yeah, on a normal day day-to-day basis because um, for me, it just it makes things easier because it makes things more consistent. Um, that only not only makes it easier for my brain to like calculate and prepare mm-hmm. for my insulin, but it also makes it easier for my body to stay consistent too. Um, cause when you're kind of going all over the place with how much you're eating, what you're eating, um, it can be hard for your body to figure out what it needs to do, what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like I said, even within the classification of red meat, white meat, there can be differences. So, you know, with pork, it's actually much different for me where pork, I can only eat very minimal amounts of pork before it starts affecting my blood sugar significantly. Um, I would say probably a quarter pound of, of pork is about all I can take before, man, it really starts to spike my, my glucose. And it does it in a very different way too, um, you know, timing wise of when it spikes and um, when it kind of plateaus. And so, again, just reiterating the point that with each type of protein source, you have to figure out how your body is going to respond to that. And so, on kind of the different end of the spectrum, when we talk about easier to digest proteins like our protein powders that are really popular in the health world or in the Mm. fitness world is the bioavailability of those proteins. So how well it's digested, how quickly it's absorbed into the bloodstream, how well it's absorbed into the bloodstream. And that can affect how your blood sugar responds to those things. Because if it's getting absorbed very well, very quickly, then it's more likely not, you know, everybody's different, but it's more likely that your blood sugar will be more affected with those things, um, with spikes or, or what have you. And Mm so, um, that's something to be aware of when you're drinking or taking those, those types of supplements. Mm -hmm. And and a classic example in a non-diabetic context of that is whey versus casein, you know, protein Mm -hmm. powder. And that whey is thought to be as a much faster absorbed, protein powder and you know can get in your muscles and you can digest much faster where casein protein is much slower digesting and just Mm -hmm. the bioavailability of those two protein types which are both cow and bovine driven um are are different just because it's a different type of protein so the protein that you eat does matter um, both as a non-diabetic as a type one and a type two Mm -hmm. definitely but um you know we've since we're talking about type one so much i think Uh, I'll kind of step in and talk about um, why that might be the case in terms of affecting your blood sugar so much Mm -hmm. in terms of protein. And so something that, um, you know, that's not talked about a lot is how that does raise blood sugar, you know, like we've already mentioned. And the reason why that is possible is because protein is made up of amino acids. Mm -hmm. So amino acids are the building blocks of protein. And so there's in the central the central amino acids, meaning these are our amino acids we need to eat. We can't, you know, we can't make them ourselves. They're essential to life, right? Mm-hmm. And the amino acids that we, the central dogma of amino acids is that we consume amino acids and then we use it for protein synthesis uh, or building of proteins and muscles in our bodies. Uh, but those building blocks also have other uses. And one of those uses could be 
to the conversion of those amino acids to glucose. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try, I'm not try, I'm going to not get into the weeds as much. You know, I'm not going to be drawing out the TCA cycle or anything like that for <laughs> oh, man. over, over words <laughs> and over a podcast or anything like that. But within your cells, there's a process called gluconeogenesis. Now to break up what that word means is gluco meaning glucose, neo meaning uh, new and genesis meaning the beginning of. So it literally means you know, formation of new glucose is what gluconeogenesis means just by mm -hmm. the Latin breakdown of that word. So there's lots of enzymes and metabolic inputs into gluconeogenesis, but one of those inputs can be amino acids. And to make sure, uh, like I said, we don't get into the weeds too much, essentially those amino acids that can turn to glucose can be categorized in three different groups. Those groups are glucogenic amino acids, which means those amino acids can turn to glucose. Mm -hmm. ketogenic amino acids meaning those amino acids can turn to ketones and then we have glucoketogenic amino acids and those amino acids can go either way so they can either form ketones or glucose you know the nice thing about these groupings in terms of what it's in terms of remembering what they are and as a diabetic the usefulness of this information is that the ketogenic amino acids there's only two essential amino acids in that group and they both begin with l so leucine and lysine are the only two amino acids that are purely ketogenic and essential amino acid pool for humans. So in theory, then, you know, if we only consumed, you know, if you were on a ketogenic diet or if you were a diabetic that wanted to have high levels of amino acids and protein and didn't want to raise your blood sugar, like you could eat leucine and lysine all day and it theoretically shouldn't change your blood sugar because those amino acids wouldn't go towards gluconeogenesis. I see. So again, it's easy to remember leucine, lysine, two L's are ketogenic and everything else, all other amino acids have the potential to turn to glucose. So just by the biochemistry of this word gluconeogenesis, amino acids do have the potential to turn to glucose. So I was actually trying to find published literature on this, like this information in terms of these groupings of amino acids more come from biochemistry textbooks yeah. and just common knowledge. But, you know, I, I really couldn't find anything in particular that was saying, you know, these ketogenic amino acids don't raise your blood sugar or these amino acids do raise your blood sugar specifically. Like yeah. it was surprisingly really hard to find. And I spent a good time amount of time at Medline and, and PubMed trying to find, you know, some data to back this up. But I did find, an article that was talking about a recent published literature <laughs> um, on the UK's diabetes community website. Uh, and they reported in a study published in the Diabetes Medicine Journal, so like a legit journal, and this study was funded by the JDRF or the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation um, regarding dosing insulin for protein. So, and I couldn't, even then I found the article reporting on this literature, this published literature, I couldn't find, they had no references on their website and I couldn't find it on my own. But anyways, so what happened was in there's the study was taking place in Australia and they took 11 participants with type one diabetes. And that's not a whole uh, lot. Yes. I think I, I have the same one. Oh yeah. I actually you found this? it. I found it. So I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, perfect. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. I'm kind of ticked that you found it. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> anyways so but they summarize and say within this study participants um 
ate two different meals and insulin was infused according to blood glucose levels, which were monitored over a five-hour period. Both meals included 30 grams of carbs and 8 grams of fat. One of the meals had 5 grams of protein and the other, gra- other meal had 60 grams of protein. The average insulin need for the low-protein meal was 6.7 units compared to 10.3 units for the higher-protein meal. This represents around a 50% greater insulin need for the higher protein meal compared to the lower protein meal. Now, this study showed that more of the additional insulin that's needed for the protein uh, was required within the first two hours. However, there was a smaller but significant need for insulin two to five hours after eating it as well. Ah, yes. And something that they didn't point out was that you know, you said the average, you needed about 50% more insulin. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the individual people, mm-hmm. the insulin requirements vary like drastically. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. So like on the high end, um, people needed like an additional um, nine to four, 9.4 units. And on the low end, you actually needed 1.3 less units of insulin for that meal. Oh, wow. So that just shows you how different everybody's physiology is. Do you have the study pulled up? Are you looking at it right now? I have, I have the notes that I took down from the study. I don't have I'm, it pulled I'm up so, right now. I'm so ticked you found this article <laughs> and I did it. Wow. You just totally embarrassed my research capability. <laughs> but I know that is really interesting that it varies so much. And that, to me, that's, that's no surprise for the bio-individuality that we all have. At the mm-hmm. same time, it's like, You know, this was all probably, I'm sure the study talks about, I'm sure this is all probably fast acting insulin, like, you know, Mm -hmm. the 100U that you talked about um, in the very first couple episodes. I know some people following the carnivore diet, which, you know, definitely not endorsing, nor am I saying it's silly, but um, I know people that only are eating meat and they're using different forms of insulin. And, but, you know, like this, this idea that you can, you need insulin for protein is is really important, but it's so individualized. Yeah. But it's still, there's starting to be more data out there like this one was showing Mm -hmm. that insulin is needed at some level for protein. Yeah. And I think that's partly why they don't teach it because they, no one has figured out the mathematical equation to tell you what to do. Yeah. Like like an endocrinologist, and an endocrinologist has a formula I forgot what the name of it is, but like to calculate carbs and to calculate correction yeah, yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, that isn't really published, yeah. per se, for protein. So it's well, like- and I think the reason is there's just not very many studies on it because this study was from 2018, so from mm-hmm. two years ago. And this is like literally the only study I could find. And mm-hmm. this is, and I think on the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation website, they quote this study. And in their, um, you know, article describing the study, this is their first knowledge or their first um, knowledge of a study being done on this um, about how protein affects blood sugar. And, mm. and it just blew me away. Like, how, is not, how has nobody looked at this and, mm. and try to quantify it? But at the same time, it makes me realize or understand at least a little bit why it's not standard of care to teach a type one diabetic that was just diagnosed that protein is going to affect your blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and because it's always blown me away why that's not taught because I just had a um, a parent of a type one reach out to me this week or maybe a couple weeks ago um, that their teenager was just diagnosed with um, diabetes and they were talking about how they're struggling with um, highs and lows and 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 I, so I walked them through like some different things that they need to look out for and plan for. And I talked about fats and proteins and they were just blown away at how they had not been taught this in the hospital. And I think mm-hmm. they had gone back to, or had called in and the nurse kind of gave them conflicting information where like, yeah, you need to be aware of it, but really it doesn't matter what you eat and all this stuff. And I'm like, Come on. <laughs> no, I'm pulling my hair out right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's I, hopefully this is a step in the right direction mm-hmm. where we can get this as standard of care and start talking mm-hmm. about this with di- uh, newly diagnosed diabetics so they don't have to figure mm-hmm. this out on, the, on their own mm-hmm. um, because it's very important and it can really throw off your, your whole day because you're like, man, mm-hmm. I took the right insulin, but why am I now low? And then all of a sudden later on, now you're spiking way high. It's like, mm-hmm. well, that's the protein and fats working on you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think eventually, well, you know, I, I think this is too big of a concept for type one diabetes management, especially since type one diabetes is rising in numbers as mm-hmm. type two is as well. Um, you know, and that's for all age groups, not just, you know, young kids, which I know we've discussed. So I, I'm sure it will be, but it's just, um, yeah, there's a lot of self-experimentation that almost needs to happen. I actually was trying to publish a case study on myself. I'm not sure if you remember this, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Uh, <laughs> so this was within my first year of Cairo school um, when I was really realizing this. And I, I realized, I was like, why is my, you know, I would do like, I would go to um, our Kairos training club or, or like this HIT workout specific for chiropractors in the mornings and i would before that i would have like a whey protein shake um Mm, you know gold standard you know (laughs) good stuff and but my blood sugar would be spiking so high like seven in the morning i was like what is going on and things were starting to click and now i realize that you know whey protein affects my blood sugar way more than other types of protein so i try to stay away from whey but i was trying to do a case study i'm like okay like this is my my blood sugar is at baseline like i'm gonna get myself 15 grams of, of this gold standard, then 30 grams and 45 and 75 grams. And I was messing up my blood sugar so much. And I think it was you and our other roommate convinced me like, you're, Gary, you're hurting yourself. Like you can't do this. Like, yeah. And so uh, I eventually stopped and I think I deleted the Excel sheet and all my data I was getting on myself, but it was fun mm. while it lasted. <laughs> um, but that, so yeah, personally, my personal experience, you know, there definitely is a difference in the types of proteins that you can use and um, how it affects your blood sugar. Like I said, whey um, definitely messes up my blood sugar way more than, you know, pea protein or beef or, you know, um, hemp protein and all these other types of protein, egg whites, like definitely Mm -hmm. way different between these, all these different types. Yeah. And something to also note is looking at the ingredients on those protein powders and seeing what else is in there. Because, you know, a lot of times these supplement companies um, will add a bunch of extra crap in there, whether that's for taste or they think it's going to help improve your performance or whatever it is. And those things can affect your blood sugar, um, whether that's because of 
directly, you know, the gluconeogenesis aspect or the fact that it may be actually causing inflammation in the body and that's mm-hmm. raising your blood sugar. Um, it's definitely something you need to be vigilant on because, like I said, companies like to add stuff in there, sneak stuff in there um, that you're not aware of. So you're saying I shouldn't buy the protein powder that is, you know, a double chocolate espresso frapple flavored protein powder <laughs> that's made from whey. You're saying I shouldn't buy that one because it's got extra stuff in it. I would advise not. That tastes so good though. <laughs> I know, right? Mm-hmm. But didn't you look up a little bit difference of specific types of protein um, in terms of like pea protein or other things like that? Yeah, so there's... And with these types of proteins, um, like Garrett said, when we look at amino acids, you have your essential amino acids, which are the ones that your body doesn't make. And so you need to get it from your diet. And so different types of proteins are classified as either complete proteins or incomplete proteins. So complete proteins have all the essential amino acids, whereas incomplete proteins do not have that. And so with animal proteins or sources, from animals all of them are complete proteins um, the exception being like a collagen based powder that's not going to have complete protein unless um, something else is added into it besides just collagen Um, but for vegetables actually most vegetable proteins um, don't have a complete um, amino acid profile Um, the exception being soy so soy um, does is a complete protein, um, but the rest of them um, typically are not. Um, but I'm sure, like I said, most supplement companies want to sell their products, and therefore they're going to try and make sure that they have everything that you know, all the the catchy phrases and everything that is going to sell that product. So you know, the pea proteins likely have amino acids added into them, um, so that they can be classified as having that full amino acid profile. Um, And so with looking at, I guess, looking at strictly the protein powders, because um, for the most part, unless you're a vegetarian, uh, you're not going to be looking at eating plants just for their protein and making sure you get enough protein. A lot of times you're looking at, protein powders um, to supplement and making sure you're getting all the protein that you need, especially in this day and age where I feel like we're in more of a health kick in this day and age. Maybe it's just the circle that I'm in, but I think you and I might be a little bit biased about that, but I like to think so too, but we also like to hang around, hang out around healthy people. That is true. So that is true. um, But um, along those lines, So I'm going to talk about my own opinion on like protein powders. And Uh my, my opinion comes from my experiences and my experiences with patients. So Grady's hot take coming in fast. (laughs) Going out on a limb here. Not really, but kind of. Um, So a lot of the protein sources that come in protein powders like I said, they have sometimes there will be a lot of extra stuff in them, especially with the plant protein powders. Um, like with, you know, you come and see pea protein, rice protein, uh, soy, things like that. 
they oftentimes have a lot of other things added into them to whether that's to complete the amino acid profile or to add nutrients or whatever it is. Um, in my experience, the more stuff you add in, whether that's, you know, generally classified as good things or not, you have a higher potential to mess with your immune system and flare your immune system up. And you're talking about the powder itself, correct? Yes. Okay. And so I like to keep it very basic, very hypoallergenic. And so therefore it's not triggering the immune system. And so along those lines, the animal sources of protein are generally going to be more safe. Now, you can be more specific to your own body and get you know specific testing done like uh, food sensitivity testing and things like that that can help you understand which exact foods do you really need to avoid because it might flare up your immune system. But I would say for the most part, the most hypoallergenic protein powder to take is actually bone broth protein. And that is what I have found to be the safest because it doesn't trigger the immune system. And because what I find with um, dairy products or soy, some of the plant sources of protein powders, um, they will more oftentimes trigger reactions with people. And those reactions can vary from gut symptoms, blood sugar symptoms, um, you know, pain symptoms, whatever it is, whatever the body is preferentially sending um, uh, inflammation, um, we can cause problems there. And so in my practice, I typically like to keep it simple and just go with the most hyperallergenic. And then um, once we get their body feeling good, feeling great, then we can start adding foods back in and see if their body handles those things or, you know, get those food sens sensitivity tests done to see if they can handle those things, if they want to, you know, go outside those lines. Um, but as a general rule, the less complicated something is, the more your body's going to like that thing. <clears throat> and so looking at the ingredients of any product, but, you know, we're talking about protein powders here. Looking at the ingredients is very important to understand, is this going to affect my body in a positive manner? Or is it just going to add a bunch of um, extra, what I'll say, crap that you don't necessarily need and may actually um, flare you up? Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that can be hard for a lot of individuals, especially those who aren't, don't, get extra additional training in nutrition or don't have this as a special interest, but rather they're navigating these things because they have to, because of their symptoms or because of their health situation. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, nutrition is such an interesting place right now because so many people are saying so many different things because the research says so many different things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of those things like looking and preparing for this podcast today, um, there's so much research on dairy and whey and how it's helping, you know, type two diabetes and helping, mm -hmm. um, with low carbohydrate or yeah, low carbohydrate diets. Um, mm -hmm. and when reality, or at least in my practice, I find that people 
it's not necessarily that it's totally wrecking people, but it's not, it's, you know, it's messing people up enough to where it can be counteractive and mm-hmm. we're fighting against it. So, um, there, it, it was just surprising to me how much was out there that was showing so many benefits. And I think that has partly to do with the fact that, um, researchers, you know, rightfully so like to eliminate a lot of the variables. So looking at specific nutrients in the dairy products or in the mm-hmm. um, way that's helping certain things. And so it's showing a benefit, but in the grand scheme of things, it tends to not be very beneficial. I think a lot of that research has a lot to do with, um, you know, where the research is coming from and who is funding the research. Yeah. And, you know, milk is a huge product of United States and plenty of countries. And like, and so the milk, milk lobby and, you know, milk farms and those types of industries fund a lot of research. And I was actually, since I've just moved, you know, up to Wisconsin, I, I'm about to see and get established with a new endocrinologist so I can continue, you know, getting an insulin prescription. Mm-hmm. And I was filling out the intake form just today. And I believe these, these endos also have an osteoporosis practice, but like on the, um, on the intake form, I was like, do you take a calcium supplement? How many glasses of milk? Of, how many glasses of milk do you drink a day? <laughs> like how, like, do you eat it in the form of cheese? Like, I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Up in Wisconsin, oh, no. you know? <laughs> and I was like, no, no. But, um, yeah. Anyways. So I, I think that has a lot to do with it too. Cause I remember actually, I had an assignment for my master's um, looking at just um, polyunsaturated fats versus saturated fats. And uh, one of the most common researched polyunsaturated fats. Um, and we'll probably talk, now we're just getting a tangent. We got to reel ourselves back in for time soon. Um, but mo- one of the most commonly researched polyunsaturated fats is vegetable oil. And that is like a staple in literally so many people's houses is vegetable yeah. oil. Um, and it's crazy how saturated no pun intended, the research, I guess, market is with polyunsaturated fat research and, and showing all this biased research towards uh, vegetable oil. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting when you actually are observing these types of patterns in, in, this, in the actual published literature out there. And, you know, people can, statistician, statisticians can look at this data for so long, like, I mean, if you read every study out there, you would lose your mind. You know? Oh, so yeah. It's definitely an interesting place to be in nutrition and, and try to, uh, the point I was trying to make was just like, look at all of these ingredients, you know, on these, on these protein powders. And I, I think most people would agree, you know, the simpler, the better, like for sure, they would agree oh, with yeah. your statement. But, um, you know, and if you could eat the right amount of protein that you're trying to eat, if that's what you're trying to do, like that would always be better than taking a protein supplement. Mm-hmm. But for convenience or whatever, you know, finding the best protein powder and maybe the most hypoallergenic or, you know, the, the most quote unquote clean protein powder could be beneficial to those individuals in those situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it, I don't, it's not that I want to like knock the dairy industry by any means, but it's just simply what I observe in my body, in my practice, you know, other clinicians that I respect what they're observing. It's, mm-hmm. And I think it's important to highlight just because dairy and whey is so prominent in our um, lives right now. And it could be some, something else, you know, it could be 
um, eggs or red meat or soy that's messing you up um, and not dairy. So um, that's why it's important to talk to your healthcare professional and, and narrow it down and make sure you're getting the right stuff in your body. Um, because mm-hmm. um, I know a lot of people, they have a hard time with meats and that's mm-hmm. typically why a lot of, or at least the people that I um, run into, that's why they get into um, the vegetarian diets or the vegan diets is because they feel like meat really wrecks them. And that can be f- for a lot of reasons because, you know, there's so many different things that can affect digestion. And if you're not able mm-hmm. to digest the meat very well, yeah, that's going to um, increase inflammation in your body because it's just rotting and putrefying in your gut and mm-hmm. because you're not able to digest it. So for those people, a lot of times just getting their digestion going, then they can start having meat again and feel mm-hmm. great. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really important. So it's all, it's all individualized is what it comes down to yes, figuring out yes. what that person needs. You know, for me, um, I do really well with protein, but I've realized, you know, the less red meat, the better, but at the same time, I love red meat, mm-hmm. but, and I've had a problem digesting protein in the past where I've had, you know, I've taken digestive supplements to help me, but now I've improved my, my gut and my health and my lifestyle where I don't need as much aid and supplement to eat those meats anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it all, it all depends. And like, it could be not just the meat, but is it cooked or is it like super rare? Like that's a huge difference too. Oh yeah. Um, so, so I think all these things play a factor in it, but we've talked a lot about type one diabetes and, and how it affects your blood sugar, but majority of people are type two and, you know, as a type one, you really need to keep an eye out for how this affects your blood sugar, but adding amino acids and, and proteins with a type two diabetic actually um, helps your blood sugar a whole heck of a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of research that sh- supports this. And uh, I'm going to quote a couple things here where there was a double blind study of two type of type two diabetics compare, comparing glucose response for 45 day intake, um, taking lysine, which is an essential amino acid, which, you know, remember this is type two diabetic lysine is a ketogenic amino acid but it's a different environment, right? So there's three groups. One group is just taking lysine. Another group is taking essential amino acids and vitamins. Just generically, that's how they described in the study. And then for control, they took calcium phosphate as a control. So probably shouldn't, you know, change anything. Um, At the end of the 45 days, plasma glucose was significantly decreased in type two diabetic groups taking essential amino acids. No other markers um, decreased, such as A1C. So A1C or plasma insulin levels did not change. Really? But yet, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, but the um, plasma glucose levels did. And it was suggested that plasma insulin did not decrease due to the increase of insulin sensitivity. Mm. So there, this the discussion in this study was saying that, you know, the glucose was lowered and they had lower glucose probably because insulin was working more efficiently. And after 45 days, isn't necessarily the biggest time frame to change your A1C. Yeah. So that's kind of what their, their discussion was. But I thought that was interesting for type 2 diabetics. And, um, you know, continuing the discussion, when amino acids such as proline, alanine, and phenylalanine, this was from another study, were exposed to adipocytes. Um, so adipocytes are your fat cells, right? Yep. It was found to increase glucose uptake 
in those fat cells, the AMPK pathway via adenopectin-dependent mechanism. Now, adenopectin is a specific hormone that is made by adipocytes, by fat cells. So these amino acids were shown specifically to increase the expression of adenopectin significantly and even a larger increase in the secretion of that adenopectin. So both in how it was utilized as well as how much this adenopectin was made. Um, and so adenopectin, I've said it a few times, and again, to clarify, it's a hormone um, that's created by adipose tissues that influences insulin sensitivity and glucose uptake and vessel inflammation. So, okay. so they were, they took these type two diabetics and they exposed them proline, alanine, and phenylalanine, which were all essential amino acids or they're rather just amino acids. And through this AMPK pathway via this adenopectin mechanism, they were able to significantly change um, insulin sensitivity, glucose uptake, and vessel inflammation. So again, I'm just showing a benefit of having the right ratios of amino acids in your blood as a type two diabetic. Yeah, those research papers are very interesting. And I, when I was doing my research, and I was mainly focusing on type 1 diabetes just because there wasn't near as much research on that. And in my research, there was just so many studies on type 2 diabetes and mm-hmm. protein or low-carbohydrate, high-protein diets and things like that. And there's just a ton of research out there showing that protein can really help with your blood sugar, especially with type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. And I found, you know, essentially a study that our last conversation about carbohydrates and almost to summarize what we're talking about now, um, essentially says, and so there's a study uh, published in food and function, um, in 2019 that clearly explains, you know, like what we've talked about and they took, um, a handful of individuals consuming, uh, a sugary drinks so or one group had a regular sugar drink. There was another group that had a sugar drink with soy protein mm-hmm. and another group that had the sugary drink, soy protein plus fiber and from brown algae. Um, and they took this after an overnight fast. So um, essentially to shorten up the study, the drink with soy protein, lower glucose response by around 35% and drink and people who had the drink with soy protein plus fiber, lowered the glucose response by 55%. Mm. So continuing wow. to, so continuing to um, show how digestion time, glycemic index, um, the proteins that you're consuming with your glucose, um, including fiber, you know, these things are all important to consider and how they can affect your blood sugar. And like you said, there's so many research, so much studies out there that, that really show this. And uh, it definitely does need to be talked about more with both type ones. And if you're a type two, it's not just, you know, be less stressed, eat better. Like there are things to consider to definitely give yourself the edge. That uh-huh. There's plenty of um, things we can do to help one another in, in that aspect. Yeah. And it even needs to be talked about with people who are struggling with blood sugar issues who aren't diagnosed as diabetic. So people who mm. have energy fluctuations throughout the day because of eating or the people who have who struggle with low blood sugar all the time. Protein really helps stabilize your blood sugar so it stays more consistent. You don't have as many highs and lows and um, things like that. And that goes across the board for, you know, type 1 diabetics, type 2 diabetics, and people who just struggle with their blood sugar going low. Protein really helps just stabilize things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
it's it's very fascinating what it's always fascinating to dive into the research about it and then clinically it's like <laughs> eat more protein yeah exactly <laughs> you know when, <laughs> when it comes down to it but um then when you get into the specific cases what protein are you eating is it the right protein for you are you sensitive to it what else is going on you yeah know? it's never as easy as eat more protein like somebody who's been waking up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m same time every day for the past 30 years you're like oh that sounds like low blood sugar just have yeah. some protein before bed <laughs> probably gonna be a little more complicated than yeah. that you know for yeah. sometimes you do hit work. those home runs every now and then where it's just mm-hmm. that simple but mm-hmm. yep people are very complex right right and, and i know you know we talked about dairy and whey and and just you know that type of industry living in Wisconsin. I know I'm going to need a pretty dang good reason (laughs) if I'm going to tell somebody to not have milk or milk or cheese or, you know, it's gotta be like this, like this is pretty clear that you can't be on this and, you know, make it um, an informed evidence-based decision and communication with that person saying, is this something that you really need? Yes, it is. No, it's not. And there's plenty of data to back it up. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's always, it's always about the patient, what's best for them. Yep. Yeah. And something, we didn't talk about with type two and the different types of protein. Um, I think it's important to point out with soy um, that soy can be, can act as, so it's a phytoestrogen. So it can act as estrogen in the body in some cases. And so with type two diabetes, especially with males, you typically will find people in a estrogen dominance sort of pattern where their body is converting testosterone into estrogen. And so by giving soy, you can potentially make that problem worse. Um, So that's something to think about when looking at soy as a source of protein or soy as just food in general. Um, If you're struggling with those hormonal problems, whether you're male or female, um, you know, I would, probably you know i advise most of my patients if they're struggling with that to avoid soy so that way it's just not a component in the equation mm-hmm. yeah that, that can definitely be part of the equation and then you can get into a deeper level of why is that even happening is it part of their detoxification systems you know are they methylating it out properly you yeah. know mm-hmm. what kind of inflammation and you know blood sugar dysregulation affects those types of hormones as well yeah, exactly. you know, we've already talked about those so it's like What's, you know, what else is going on? It doesn't necessarily mean that soy is bad, but it can be potentially more fuel to the fire in certain situations. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I think both you and I don't blanket statement or there's some blanket statements that you and I have, but, uh, yeah. you know, for the most part, I don't think uh, we try to take each case as it comes. Yeah, exactly. Only cis still in af- absolutes. And we aren't cis. So. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Uh, but anyways, so I think that's pretty close to 50 minutes an hour. So I think we'll probably wrap up there. So we'll maybe end it with this one weird comment, Grady. What is the most interesting protein powder you have ever tried? Oh, all right. So two come to mind. So I'm going to pick two because they're too interesting or mm-hmm. nasty. Um, two ones in two different ways. So one of them was a salmon-based protein. Yep, I gave you that one. Yeah, that you was gave me that mine. one. And 
it had like it was just so much stimulus like there's so much tangy and sourness but then also you could and i think that was try to try and cover up the fish taste because you could oh, yeah. still taste the fish in it it was so, it was like salmon protein that was lime flavored yeah yeah so i actually was able to make it work with the because i just started making smoothies with it so i added some fruit to it and it kind of made it work a little bit but eventually i i was like nah i can't do this anymore um the other one was a plant-based protein and i can't remember exactly what it was made out of or and even what company it was but um it wasn't bad if you drank it like right away but mm -hmm. like if you let it sit for a while like a lot of times i would make shakes in the morning and then take them to school and have them you know for a snack or something mm -hmm. and if it sat for a while it would just like solidify at the bottom and just be mm. like this huge clump it was like such a weird texture and a weird um like solid because it wasn't like clumps that you get with like whey protein it was like mm. like a literally a solid chunk at the bottom of the mm. container yep. i've had that yeah it was weird and it was nasty mm. Yeah, I've had similar when I've used plant proteins before, more just chunks up like that. But yeah, definitely the grossest was that salmon lime one that <laughs> I gave to you because I, I smelt it. I couldn't even, I think I tried making a shake once and I couldn't handle it. And yeah. I'm surprised that you found a way to take it. And <laughs> yeah, so that was, that, was, that was probably the most interesting protein powder I think I've ever oh, tried. Oh, yeah. But anyways, um, thanks for listening, folks. Uh, we appreciate the time as always. Um, if you found value in this conversation, we appreciate a share. And if you ever have questions, uh, feel free to always email us. Uh, you know, we've engaged in some conversations already that have been fruitful. So yep. um, we, we appreciate uh, the time and the support. Anything else, Doc? Nope. Just reiterate, you know, ask, ask questions. We want to help you guys. Um, we want to, you know, be as helpful as possible. So um, questions are always welcome, whether that's, in a public domain or you want to um, direct message us or email us. Um, we want to hear from you. All right. Well, until next time, this has been the Die Buddies podcast. See you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on The Die Buddies Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.